Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, Arthur Jampa and I will be covering Tyrion's third POV chapter. Arthur and I just struck up a relationship by way of email, and we started to talk about Game of Thrones, and I decided, you know what? I think I'm going to have him on. We're going to talk a little bit about Tyrion. And of course, you know, as a student at the London School of Economics, he's a little bit like Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. Uh, Steve and I will cover Darkwing's Dark Words, second episode of season three. In my bird's eye view section, I'll talk a little bit about the War of the Roses and parallels using Caroline Larrington's book, Winter is Coming. Caroline is a medievalist at Oxford, and she'll be on in a couple weeks to talk about our next Danny chapter. Keeping with the medievalism theme, here is medievalist Jana Matthews. Okay, this question is from Elizabeth, and uh, she asks, The Northerners and the men of the Night's Watch wear a lot of fur as part of their daily wear, presumably to keep warm. What can you tell us about fur preservation during medieval times? Was fur restricted to upper social strata? In other words, like fancy furs. Yeah, that's such a great question. I'm going to be speaking mostly from the perspective of kind of medieval Western culture. And so that will, just by nature of that, will will enable me to provide like a partial answer. But we obviously know that people were for, uh, in remote tribes and they who lived off the land in upper Scandinavia and, and those kinds mm-hmm. of places. And, and uh, they wore what was available to them. Uh, the most common fur that we have, this is from trading records and from import export uh, documents that we have that, that we seem to think was the squirrel. And that sounds strange, right? <laughs> but um, you know, it actually makes sense when you think about the animal that was um, was native to the region of Europe and throughout most of uh, Central Asia um, and also pervasive and easy to access. It was right. the squirrel. Right. And so squirrel pelts were super, super popular. Um, the other animals that show up in records a, a ton are otter and weasel and sable and martin. And sable and martin are essentially two versions or varieties of kind of a an, an animal that is sort of a cross between a cat and a weasel. It's probably the best way to describe mm-hmm. what this what this creature was. And I, I think what's important about that, the, the question was is asking about fur being restricted to social strata. And the answer is yes. Like in, in later years, particularly after the, in the 14th century and beyond, um, fur is a, it, it's a commodity and it's a, a rare resource. And anything that is rare has a tendency to be commodified and used for social purposes. So starting in the 14th century, we have the rise of what we call sumptuary law. And sumptuary law or dress codes originally started with the Catholic church. So um, what kind of monk you were, for example, is dependent upon what kind of clothing or outfit you're wearing. Hmm. And then that concept was eventually expanded to the secular everyday realm as well. And so some of these dress codes were for practical reasons, but um, in the case of fur, they were often used for economic reasons and social reasons. And so an example of, of sumptuary law, and I, I pulled this from Henry VIII um, from his realm, but they had actual statutes and laws that were passed that governed and told people what they could and couldn't wear depend upon social station. So I'll read a little excerpt from this, but it says, woolen cloth made out of the realm, but in caps only, velvet, crimson, or scarlet, furs, and then they specify black genets, and then lucernes, 
and then it goes on embroider a tailor's work on a you can wear those things but only if you are a viscount a baron and a knight hmm. being a companion of the garter and a genet is a kind of a spotted cat that's found in spain and france super pretty um, and a lucerne is a lynx hmm. so so these are two kind of what what your reader described as as fancy fur and they are also, and so this statute is saying you can only wear these kinds of fur if you are part of the, these noble or royal classes and you'll be fined and imprisoned um, if you do wear them. Hmm. There's regulations on how you could wear your hair and hmm. what you could put in it. And so, and I think that important note, important point is, is that uh, just because we had regulations um, doesn't mean that they were like, rigorously enforced. And so it's a, we have, some examples where they were um, enforced, but the fact that these statutes kept getting passed over and over and over again suggest that they didn't have quite the level of effectiveness that yeah, right. other people, you right? I mean, you don't need to make a big deal out of the law if everyone's already doing what they should be doing, right? Exactly, exactly. So I, I think we have to kind of take these things with a grain of salt. So I think just because some, just because we have like evidence of these laws being passed doesn't necessarily mean that sure. you know, people were, were enforcing them. Uh, All right. So, uh, Arthur Jampa, welcome back Mm -hmm. to Electric Bookaloo. Thank you. We are talking about Tyrion, and this is prime real estate, man. People want to talk about Tyrion. Oh, he's 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 everyone's favorite, isn't he? He, Everyone's favorite, and so I normally save this for my favorite my favorite guest. So you have this. You have a place of honor. I have more than others. You've got the Tyrion real estate. <laughs> is, everyone, is everyone coming at you saying, give me the Tyrion chapter? Yes, and they're going to be upset. They're like, you gave that kid. <laughs> you gave that kid the Tyrion I got, real estate? <laughs> I mean, I got the Tyrion and John real estate. I mean, this is... <laughs> yeah, this is pretty decent. But I wanted, yeah. to, I wanted to ask you about this because one of your keen interests is Chinese history. Mm-hmm. And the wall features very prominently in this chapter. Mm-hmm. And I've done a lot of research and I've written a little bit and I've talked a little Ooh. bit about the inspiration for the wall in Britain, right? So mm-hmm. Hadrian's wall. But yeah. you mentioned to me that the wall actually probably has a lot of parallels with the Great Wall of China. And I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, Um I thought that, uh, to be honest, I think um, the comparison between um, Hadrian's Wall and um, the Wall of Ice is probably the one that's a bit more accurate when it comes to George Martin's thinking. Like, I did, I also did a bit of research. And sure, yeah. Someone, oh, yeah. So, uh, so some some journalist asked him this, and he was like, oh, no, the, the, the inspiration was Hadrian's Wall. I, I've never been to China. <laughs> so, right. So but that's what, that's what thinks, are, I mean, clearly there are some major differences between Hadrian's Wall and, and the <laughs> yeah. Wall, right? Yeah, and I think, like in a way, I think I actually I made I made a little I made three columns, <laughs> but like the facts about the three walls, and I thought again, okay, I thought you tell me if you think this is fun. I thought I could tell you like a fact about the Hadrian's Wall and then the wall, and you can guess. Um, oh, and which one? Oh, all right. So yeah, you yeah. you've turned this on. So you're telling me <laughs> that you're taking over. This is now your podcast. <laughs> yes, absolutely. All right, fine. You, you you know what? That's very colonial of you. But go ahead. 
<laughs> Stevie British of me. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So. Yeah. Go ahead. Go for it. The wall is um, 300 miles. Okay. Yeah. And then Hadrian's wall is 73 miles long. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you guess how long the Great Wall is? Oh, Craig! I see, this is, no, I can't. I can't. I'm gonna, <laughs> here's what I'm going to guess. I'm going to. I'm going to make some bizarre, stupid guess based on no information. I'm not looking yeah. it up on my smartphone. I'm going to guess it is 300 miles. It is 13,000 miles long. Holy moly! <laughs> So and just wrong. for reference, the world, the circumference of the world is 24,000 miles. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, now I feel a little bit better because that's absolutely an absurdly long wall. Isn't it? <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, yeah. All right. So let's do the next one. I clearly failed that okay. one. Okay. The, the wall is 700 um, feet tall. Hadrian's Wall is a, is a mere 15 feet tall. Can you guess um, how tall the, the Great Wall is? Actually, there's two heights. There's, it's like the normal height and then uh -huh. the highest point. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and guess the normal height. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say 30 feet. Oh, you're bang on. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. So it's, it's twice the size of Hadrian's Wall. The highest okay. point is 30,000 feet, but that's like a tower on top of a hill. So I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not sure what Wait, say, say that again. The highest point is what? 30,000 30, feet. 30,000? Yep. Wow. So yeah. yeah, you're using the natural geography to make that happen, right? Yeah, but in a way, it's much taller than the wall. So <laughs> That's amazing. Right? All right. So next one. Okay, um, this one will be easier. The, the wall has a, a massive walkway. Wait, let me ask you about the first one. Is it actually 30 feet or is it just kind of around 30 feet? No, no I think it is actually 30 feet. Oh, wow. Well, for, for, for my very rudimentary research. Okay, all right, go ahead. <laughs> um, so the wall has a, like a, a walkway that like soldiers would, would walk on, well, the, the Night's Watch. Yeah. Um, Hadrian's Wall, it's debated whether it has a walkway. Do you know if the Great Wall has one? Are you talking about like a walkway on the top? Yes, a walkway on the top where people could walk like along the, the, the Well, I feel like this is cheating because I feel like <laughs> I've seen images of people walking along the top. Like it's a you know pretty wide road. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to say yes. Yes, uh, it does. Um, and there's something like I remember like hearing something a long time ago that like five horses could like walk side by side or something something like that. Free? Wow! I did I did not know that. <laughs> That's well, amazing. and don't take my word for it either because I could be misremembering that. It really does give you a sense of how amazing an, a feat it actually is, right? Yeah, it's it's. I think it probably is the most impressive thing that has ever been. I don't see anything that has been built. Like we've built a lot of mm -hmm. impressive things, but like I think it is the most of those. I mean, even if you put it back in the hist historical context too, I think yeah. it definitely is the greatest um, feat of construction by humanity. I don't know about that. Mm. Ha have you seen Tom Cruise lately? He's 60 years old. Yeah. He looks like he's about 30. <laughs> That's got to be man-made. 
you, there's you something the unnatural happening there. <laughs> For me, it's it's Thomas Axtrobodin. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Who does he play Game of Thrones again? Uh, the, the, the oh Jojen, Jojen Reed. Yeah, 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 yeah Jojen. Um, and he he is thirty, and he looks sixteen. Uh, I don't understand what's going on. Yeah, yeah. That there's some ma- there's some serious blood magic happening there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So no, you're you're absolutely right. The Great Wall of China is the wonder of the world, right? Mm-hmm. And in some ways, Martin's Wall is so magnificent that it's hard to imagine anything that would be more impressive than than that in that world, right? But the other thing is the the the, the ice wall has been got breached, uh, be it, even though it had like this magical element to it, and um, and that's also true of, of the Great Wall, right? Genghis Khan um, managed to breach, which I think Genghis Khan and the Night King um, similar in a way. They just bring interesting, doom. okay. And yeah, so he so Genghis Khan breached the wall. Um, he did it by luring out um, the Chinese. He he told us told us like act scared. And then everyone left. Everyone left the world. Be like, yeah, <laughs> like chasing after them. And then he he killed them. If there's gonna be a breach, it's gonna be a human element, right? It's always a problem with technology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's like it's like hacking. Yeah. So he hacked it. He hacked exactly. the wall. All right. I'm gonna do a quick synopsis of the chapter. Here's my synopsis. Tyrion is drinking, jesting, and mocking the elite members of the Night's Watch. He's with Jeremy and Riker and Bowen and Eamon and Lord Mormont. All seem to welcome his humor except one Alistair Thorne who challenges Tyrion to a duel. <laughs> eventually, <laughs> eventually, Alistair leaves in a huff and Tyrion holds court again. The group dwindles until only Tyrion and Gior remain. Gior pleads with Tyrion to advocate more for more Black Brothers. He pleads with Tyrion to explain the dangers of winter, the lack of personnel, and the advancing others. Tyrion humors the old man and promises to bring his plea to King's Landing. Once outside, Tyrion decides to visit the top of the wall one last time. And there, he encounters Jon Snow... And the two say their goodbyes. So, Arthur, would you like to mm-hmm. talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or shall you and I just climb the ladder of chaos? See, I I don't know how season three's go, but in season two, the ladder of chaos was much too popular. Um, yeah, it's and... it's it's becoming it's kind of <laughs> becoming a cliche at this point. Exactly. Um, so I think I'm, I'm going to stay away from the ladder of chaos. Um, All right. Good. Well, I, I, and, I, and you, you know, with your accent, I would imagine. <laughs> I mean, I mean, your accent, your accent is kind of. It, it really does give me the image of someone who's very London Oxbrit, you know, stayed. Have it under control. That's my that's my impression. <laughs> and 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 chaos just doesn't go with that. I mean, I would chaos. Chaos is for other less civilized people. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think uh, I'm, I'm, I think I should build a wall to separate myself from, <laughs> um, from the rest. All right. Of the world so what do you, what do you want to talk about? 
Um, I, I think I want to talk about a theme um, because I think there's a really interesting like duality between like the two themes, which are like the the horror element of this chapter uh -huh. and then the comedy element. Um, and I think it ties in really well to the most interesting part of, of, of this, which I think is the friendship between John and Tyrion, which is maybe a bit unexpected. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I guess I really want to peer into that. Let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's kind of one of the 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 key building blocks of this, mm -hmm. and it's interesting because here we have these two key characters that are going to be integral to the story. And as far as the book goes, they're not going to see each other again. Yeah. And it's, you like to think it's such a shame because I feel like they, they, if they just teamed up all the time, surely they'd be unstoppable. Like I feel like John yeah. has everything that Tyrion needs and Tyrion has everything that John needs. You're, you're absolutely right that that friendship could be really beneficial to both of those characters. Yeah, I think John could be like the moral compass mm. um, and the bravery and the, the strength of character that Tyrion has some of that, but maybe he's missing a bit. And then, um, and then Tyrion could be the the, the the smarts, the cunning. He can also be just a huber and lighthearted. But I think just John alone, without any of his friends, would just be sad all the time. That's true, and I think you're right, and I think that. John is one of the few people that actually so far that actually see Tyrion as someone to be admired. Like like Gior yeah. actually does too. You know, he says we need men of cunning at the wall. But even mm -hmm. that word cunning doesn't have like a some some of a negative connotation. Like cunning like like yeah. you don't like like if you want to call mm -hmm. someone brilliant, you could call them brilliant or smart or whatever. Cunning has just a like a little bit like you're smart, but in a way I'm not sure I can trust. Yeah, it's like Mr. Fox Fantastic. Is that his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mr. yeah that's right. The Fantastic Mr. Fox. So Fantastic Mr. Fox, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I yeah, and but John just sees Tyrion. I think really sees him as this is someone who's impressive. This is someone to look up to. And I think very few people understand that about Tyrion at this point. See, I made a, I came to a different conclusion because I okay. thought that John keeps saying Lannister, and I think behind the words Lannister, he's um, it's a thinly veiled way of him saying I don't really trust you because of your family. Um, huh. But Ma Maester Aemon, I think, is the person who is the first person in the book to really see Tyrion as a giant that he is. He describes Tyrion as a giant, and Tyrion is surprised, and he's like, I've never been told that before. And I think Maester Eamon is seeing something, and I think that's kind of his gift. He's this See, wise man. Who all sees right, things. that's a really interesting. I want. I absolutely want to talk about Maester Eamon, but first I have to kind of follow up this other thing. So, mm -hmm. when I hear John call people by their last name, I hear him making a class distinction and putting himself in sort of the beta role. Because he always calls, he always calls, um, not always, but he most often calls Rob Stark. Like when he's talking yes. directly to his brother, he calls him Stark. And I think that that's his way of saying, I know my place in this family. And we're familiar. And so I'm going to call you just by that one name or whatever. 
but I'm going to remind everyone in the room that I know my place. So I think that there's like a class element there, and I think that he does the same thing with Tyrion. Yeah, but in a way, I kind of, I I, I definitely agree. But I also think that maybe maybe John is a bit more ambitious than we give him credit. Mm. Um, mm. Like when he when he when he tells uh, Tyrion <laughs> to go to Rob and to tell him about how he should you know stop fighting and stop being a lord because he's going to handle everything and become a lord commander i was like well this is a very john is it now <laughs> sounds like little finger or something um he's not the best with jokes <laughs> yeah it's his attempt his, his sword isn't nearly as sharp yet uh but okay no i i hear you on that so you think that john when he says lannister you think that there's like a, a little bit like eh, i'm not sure if i can trust lannisters I think maybe I'm being influenced by the show here. Um, yeah, I'm not in, sure in, either. In, 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 in this, I see. I, I think that because I watched the, the the when I when I watched the scene um, earlier, I uh-huh. felt like um, John was saying Lannister a bit dryly um, huh. instead of saying Tyrion. Um, so, but maybe maybe I misread something. That That's interesting. I for some reason I took it the exact no I'm I'm going to let's go with your interpretation. I want to let you know though mm-hmm. that when I heard Tyrion say that or I saw it on the page or whatever. Mm-hmm. I thought here's the only guy that's actually giving Tyrion respect. He's not calling him the dwarf. He's not calling him, you know, some stupid name, the imp or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um let's pause that for a minute. I I absolutely want to talk about Eamon. Mm-hmm. Alright, I'm going to read this little passage. Here's what Eamon says. He says, Oh, I think that Lord Tyrion is quite a large man. Master Eamon said from the far end of the table. He spoke softly. Yet the high officers of the Night's Watch all fell quiet, the better to hear what the Ancient had to say. I think he is a giant come among us, here at the end of the world. Tyrion answered gently, I've been called many things, my lord. But giant is seldom one of them. Nonetheless, Maester Aemon said, as his clouded, milk-white eyes moved to Tyrion's face, I think it is true. So you think that Aemon sees Tyrion more clearly than anyone else at the table, or maybe anyone else in the story. Yeah, like exactly the same way that he sees John better than everything else. Mm-hmm. I, I, think, I think that's the big thing about Aemon is that he might not literally see, but he sees much more than everyone else, which, which is a bit of a trope, right? Blind people can sure. see what other people can't. But I, it's just so well written. Just I, I get chills <laughs> to, to think about this quiet based aim and saying that. Okay, I've got a question about this, but I absolutely want to get to your theme first. So tell mm-hmm. me more about the theme that you were on about earlier. Yeah, I just think that Tyrion comes into this world where there's a lot of horror. Like, for example, the way that... Tyrion describes past the war in the haunted forest really uh, is very Stephen Kingy in the way that George R. R. Martin writes it, in the way that um, they predict doom. You have all those horror themes in it, but in the meanwhile, you have Tyrion putting in his jokes and his and his jeers and his jabs. It's very it's very striking. It really brings out uh, Tyrion's character and his environment. And like I think the best way to illustrate it is the Raven at the beginning of the the chapter. That keeps interrupting everyone. That like says repeat duel when when uh, Sir Azathorn like threatens Tyrion with a duel, and then like repeats fool when 
uh, yeah. Mormont is like deep <laughs> in his in his chat about how I would like self pity about being a fool, and it's like the idea that, that a raven is not it's not meant to be for comedy, right? No one uses raven to right. to, to create comedy. You would use a parrot or something. But George R. R. Martin, I think, is doing this intensity, right? He's really trying to to show this is a world of horror, and, and Tyrion is bringing in humor here, and he sees things humanly, and we're seeing it from from his eyes. Yeah, it's like gallows humor, and. Mm-hmm. There's there's something about that that can kind of bring the truth into a situation in kind of a benign way. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I do think that Tyrion, Tyrion, in his heart of hearts, does not believe that the Night's Watch is an old and noble profession. He thinks it's a farce. I mean, he yeah. thinks it's an old profession, but I think that he thinks the Night's Watch is r- ridiculous. And the people that think that they're doing any good up here, if this is anything more than a penal colony or whatever, they're fooling themselves. So when he makes a joke, it, Alistair Thorne actually is right mm-hmm. in that Tyrion is making fun of them. Yeah, and I think in a way, the fact that Tyrion comes from a different perspective to them he he comes with a, with a perspective of misunderstanding of their position, and 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 they right. come and they're like, oh, we don't understand this man who just jokes around and thinks everything is funny, but in a way that kind of enables them to see things about each other that no one else sees. He's our first introduction to someone else in the wall starting to to question. You you, you might right. he might not actually question it in um, on paper in this chapter, but. The reader is starting to think, hmm, I feel like Tyrion isn't is less and less certain. And he's he's um he starts to respect the wall more and more. Mm-hmm. Um and respect the people at the wall. And I think the people at the wall see something in Tyrion that other people might not, because they also have this different perspective than others. Right. Right. And he's, you know, he's smart. He's smart. And so there are very few people that are going to assess a situation in the same way that Tyrion will. Mm. And I think Jorah sees that, you know, he's, he's, you know, we could use men like you up here. Um, Of course, Jorah's willing to take anyone. (laughs) (laughs) That's his job. (laughs) That's his job just to take anyone. (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, no, he, he kind of looks around the room and says, there's no one here that can really take over for me when I'm gone. You know, most of these guys can't read. You know, I, I know what these men are and they're not leaders, which kind of introduces this sort of deficit. It's like a hole that event that, that we would assume that eventually someone's going to need to fill, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, we know that that's going to be John eventually. But, um, but anyway, I, I think that the point here is that Tyrion does bring something new, unique, fresh, to this really old institution. Do we think Jorah is like a sleazy salesman that has the the, the same the same phrases for everybody? And he goes, no, "You're special. We need someone like you." <laughs> I think he has to. I mean, anyone who's willing to visit, yeah, 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 you know, he's probably pleading with everyone that that is willing to visit. Um, I think he has. A, I think he has a script. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He probably does. <laughs> I mean, not to say that he he's not also impressed by Tyrion, but I think yes. he sees in Tyrion a way to get into the ear of the king in a way that he wouldn't have otherwise. Absolutely. I've got a question for you about um, what Aemon says. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is the second time that Tyrion has been described as a giant. Yeah. 
The first time he was with Jon Snow, and when he walks away, his shadow is cast behind him, and the shadow is, like, it could be the shadow of a giant. It's so big, Mm -hmm. right? And then, all right, and then so Master Eamon says this, and he says it very directly, and it's not meant to be a joke. He's trying to say, and everyone at at the table knows, he's trying to say something true about Tyrion, Mm -hmm. right? So then later on in dance, Tyrion meets this red priest named Makoro. Mm-hmm. And Makoro has a vision of Tyrion wherein he's a giant. That could be like a metaphor that he's, you know, he's actually a really important guy, even though he's short of stature or whatever. I I don't know how, what to think about this. I, I have been waiting and I have been entertaining this idea that Tyrion will undergo some kind of physical transformation. Ooh. I, honestly, I'm surprised that Bran didn't have like a vision of Tyrion stepping on King Sanding. Oh, that's it. Well, he does. Bran does see an image of a giant, but it's like a oh. stone giant. And we're not really sure what that means. But um... yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, all right. So here's the other thing about these guys, all, all these guys. Mm-hmm. I think it's possible that it has something to do with dragons. I don't know what don't know what it what? is. Wait, where did the dragons come from? I well, here's the thing. I think that uh, John and uh, Aemon are Targaryens, right? We know that. Mm-hmm. Makoro has become this sort of prophet that's promoting Danny, mm, and Tyrion's. Tyrion's always had this fascination for dragons, and I think that he's not like on some kind of collision course with Danny, and I think he's about to become sort of the you know the military mind behind the dragons. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't. I don't know if Tyrion's a secret Targaryen. I don't know if he's gonna ride a dragon. I don't know any of this. I don't know. I any feel of like this. he needs to ride the dragon. I think. I think that's accepted. So I guess that there, there are three there are three times and Martin likes to do this three times where this thing is said about Tyrion it can't go nowhere it has to come to fruition in yeah. some way if, so it could just yeah. be a metaphor it could just be he's going to become like a giant military presence uh, but I wonder and it's a world of magic I wonder if I wonder if there's something else happening there well I think I think that's fair because if you look at the like the, um Daenerys, right? It's mentioned in the first book once that she takes a hot bath and then she's immune to fire. So mm-hmm. I think it's a it's a fair conclusion to say that okay, maybe giant is mentioned three times, but that still could be he turns into a giant or you know, brighter yeah. dragon. Martin does I mean he has said that he will often do this with a plot reveal. Like he'll drop a little breadcrumb so that the really astute readers will like perk up their eyes. And then the second time he drops it, it's pretty obvious that that's where he's going. But then he'll mm. do a third one that kind of hits you over the head with it <laughs> in case you <laughs> didn't catch the first two. Or whatever. That, he does like to employ that kind of storytelling. Anyway, I yeah. I thought it was really interesting that Eamon says it and it's not explained. It's like everyone knows he's not joking. But and in addition to that, Tyrion says, "Oh well, you're too kind." And then he says, "I'm I'm rarely described as kind." So it's not like he's just giving him a compliment. There's something about what Aemon says here that's I think 
it's supposed to foreshadow some kind of transformation, whether it's metaphorical or whatever. You're right. I think I think Tyrion clearly has uh, an attraction to Targaryens. I think Targaryens clearly see mm-hmm. Tyrion in a way that mm-hmm. others don't. In this chapter, we have a lot of foreshadowing. I yes. mean, it literally is. So tell me about the other foreshadowing in this chapter. Well, evidently, there's a, <laughs> there is a lot of foreshadowing yeah. about the others coming down and all the evidence of why they think mm-hmm. that exists. Um, there's quite a bit of foreshadowing when Tyrion says goodbye to everybody. Um, that all these people are going right. to die. Um, like, like um, George Armand says, and he left him in that manner. And, you know, you kind of Yeah, it's very ominous the way he him. says it, right? It's very creepy. Yeah, and, and obviously there's a lot of foreshadowing. This is the first time that realistically, because, okay, Tyrion coming into contact with the idea of the others, that's not the first time the reader comes into contact sure. with that. But the idea that Tyrion is a huge character... That's that's new to the right. media. I mean, this is the first, the third chapter of Turn in the Wild, um, and this is the first time that people consistently are saying this guy's really special. And so, in a way, maybe this is uh, Martin's Martin's way to really hammer that. Yeah, in. that's right. And it really, this first book is very much about people doubting the supernatural, right? At least the people mm-hmm. that need to know, people, the people actually, that actually, w- it would be helpful if they knew that the others are real and mm-hmm. the dragons are real and things like that. People are continually disbelieve this. And Tyrion's like a great example of this. He really does doubt all the snark and grump. Yeah. Talk. And see, I have a bone to pick with this because um, you often talk about how this is well, a world on the edge of modernity. Yeah, I've modernity, said that a couple of times, right? sure. And, right. And I see, I have my issue with that is how can it be on the edge of modernity when Everything that's modern about them comes from an institution of the Maces that goes back thousands oh, of years. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and so th- that's kind of what I don't understand is how, like, when scientific institutions yeah. like that come up, like, it's not it's not true that um, academics are useless and they don't lead to progress in society. <laughs> you know what I mean, like, if, if you're going to have that much science, it's going to feed into you kind of stepping away from... Huh. Um, from like a, a position of the middle ages and, and that, well, that kind okay. Of... Let me, all right, let me defend the position just a little bit here. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, mm-hmm. you got some pretty heavy yeah. hitters um, in, you know, in Athens, you've got some, you know, people like Augustine are, you know, highly academic people. You've got people all throughout uh, the quote unquote middle ages who are really, really smart people. But what ends up happening is it's not like the people are necessarily getting smarter than the geniuses of the past. But what happens at the edge of modernity is that there's a lot of different schools of thought that end up starting to point in one direction. And you see that with the Renaissance Mm, and you see that then again with sort of the natural sciences a little bit later. And, what I'm saying, I guess what I'm saying with Martin's world is that there's this key shift away from the supernatural in this one moment of time. So it's like the maesters are finally at a yeah. point where like dragons are in the past. And, you know, let's let's think academically about these things. Let's, you know, let's use like good, solid yeah. reasoning to try to sort of dispel some of these old myths 
this really is kind of a hybrid. Like Martin's creating a hybrid where some people in the world are very much sort of grasping forward to progress. But for the most part, people are not done with magic yet. So I, I do think that there's something yeah. of a hybrid setting happening. Yeah, I think I I think I agree. I think it it definitely serves the purpose of his of his storytelling. So if if that's true, I think in the world on the cup of, uh, cusp of modernity, it's it's missing for me two things, which is in those worlds there's quite a fast techno technological advancement, and you don't see that in this world. And there's also a lot of curiosity, a lot of open mindedness. Um, Close-mindedness is something mm -hmm. that you see. Close-mindedness of of from very scientific thoughts mm -hmm. and pushing mm -hmm. things away that you're quite certain don't exist come because you 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 are modern and so you know if um, dragons exist or not. Um, but if you you live in a world where mm -hmm. no one has really gone that you don't know what's north of the wall and literally no one has gone there, mm -hmm. um, it's curious to me that uh, people write it off because i mean uh, magic and the others are uh sorry dragons and the others are magic to us because they don't exist in our world but it's not magic to them like it's scientific to them well it should be scientific to them um see i to, to me that, that i felt i felt like martin mm. is kind of bringing his biases this is the work for the story here's why it mm -hmm. actually is important that someone like Tyrion or someone like the maesters exist in this world mm -hmm. is that here we have you know some of the really the, the really smart and bright people of the world and basically they can function as a stand-in for the modern mind so i'll read this little passage here as he stood there and looked at the darkness with no fires burning anywhere the wind blowing and the cold like a spear in his guts Tyrion felt as though he could almost believe the talk of the others the enemy in the night his jokes of grumpkins as narcs no longer seemed quite so droll. The only reason that a, a, a paragraph like that works is if Martin has done the hard work yeah. of yeah. really, really hitting us over the head with Tyrion skepticism. So if we kind of see ourselves through Tyrion's eyes or see this world through Tyrion's eyes, then we kind of inhabit that role of the skeptic, which of mm. course we should. We, you know, we live in a world where where Tyrion's right. You know, if Tyrion lived in our world, he would absolutely be right. You know, there's no snarks and grumpkins. But yeah. in Tyrion's world, if a guy like Tyrion, who's a famous skeptic at this point, mm -hmm. can kind of start to wonder, well, I wonder if this talk of the others is actually true. Then, of course, then then it kind of serves yeah. that purpose for us. We start to think, oh, crap. Like, And we know that they are true. And so we can kind of experience Tyrion's sense of awe, his sense of horror in that way. So I guess my point is that there's a few characters in the story that's, that function in that way as sort of skeptics of magic. I think Maester Loon is one of those characters. I think that um, I think Tyrion is one of those characters. And so then the reveal of magic is all the yeah, more and I think that's exciting. why George's writing um, in a Game of Thrones is such good fantasy writing. It's that, that even if you are someone like um, 
like your friend Steve, <laughs> who doesn't um, doesn't isn't really mm. into dragons and fantasy and everything. The he uses these characters to kind of slowly introduce you and slowly yeah, yeah. Uh, make you believe. He does exactly the same things with the dragons, right? No one believes that the dragon eyes are going to become dragons. He slowly makes you believe that this might happen, and then they're tiny dragons and they become big. And so this like slow right. burn. Instead of like, okay, you're, you're in this fantasy world and I'm immediately introducing all of the things that you're not comfortable with. He starts with a world that you're comfortable with and he slowly introduces them and uses the skepticism of the characters kind of counterpoint. I, th- like, right. I think you're right, your own. Right. Well, he uses the skepticism to help you forget what you learned in the prologue, right? Mm-hmm. So um, some notable introductions. Um, mm-hmm. We have a few members of the Night's Watch that are mentioned, or at least we see them for the first time. Um, we hear about the lights of Mole Town. Uh, Tyrion gets a good view of the crumbling walls mm-hmm. of Castle Black. And um, it really, you know, the, the top of the wall. The top of the wall is like... Um, yeah. I mean, it really gives you kind of sense of the darkness all around Tyrion. And so this chapter, it doesn't... I wouldn't say it introduces... The concept of the White Walkers or the impending darkness or, you know, the long winter or whatever. But it really kind of tries to drive home the, you know, this looming horror. Yeah. And I, and I think th- I think there's also a good parallel with uh, people's experience when they go sit on Hadrian's Wall and they can see like the fog and they feel kind of scared of what's what's past the horizon. I think that's also what Martin's trying to, to translate here. Yeah, anything's anything's possible beyond the edge of the world. Um, book versus show differences. Maybe you could help me with this. You you recently rewatched this these scenes, right? Yeah, um, Mormont laughs, <laughs> and he he laughs so much much that he like spits out his food. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> what is going on? I that is not the Mormont I know. No, 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 no. Yeah, Mormont is a, he's he's an old bear, right? Yeah, exactly. Right, he's stoic. So yeah, it's a different different portrayal of that character for sure. We have more. We have more corn again. Um, I don't know what what's up with ravens and corn, but um... <laughs> yeah, more corn. <laughs> Do you think that there's something Tyrion happening? The raven, the, the raven. Do you think the raven? There's more to the raven than meets the eye. Are you trying trying to say it's Bran? That's uh, I was thinking, the, the, the like way. I don't know, maybe it could be like the three eyed crow. You know, we know that the three eyed mm-hmm. crow can inhabit. I agree, but but then he he'd just be having fun because he's not bringing anything to the table. <laughs> not really. I mean, half the time he's saying corn, so I I don't want to read too much into this. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. Says, are there any other that that strike you as important? Yes. Yeah, the- the, the striking scene of, of Tyrion peeing off the wall. And I think, I think, <laughs> um, I think, I think in a way it really shows the difference of how Tyrion is introduced in the show compared to the, to the book. In the book, he, in, in the first scene, he's kind of introduced as, as silly. Yeah. But then that kind of, when, like when he goes to the wall, he is silly, but he's not disres- disrespectful um, to the wall in that way. And I felt like him peeing off the wall on the show was kind of a show of disrespect that 
kind of for me shows the difference where they're kind of they're kind of hurrying Tyrion into the personality that we'll know later right. into the, in the book. Yeah, yeah. I feel like late Tyrion would definitely pee off the wall, but early Tyrion would not do that. I'm not sure he's he gained the confidence to do that yet. Um, but the show is it goes faster, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure young Tyrion um, is the Tyrion that people like, and so the show. You know what? We'll just we'll go straight with with later Tyrion. So. I I didn't realize I didn't remember this till just now, but it's almost like Tyrion's got like a bucket list where he like <laughs> he wants yes. to pee off the edge of the world or whatever in the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So when I was in junior high, and I'm not proud of this, Arthur. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not proud of this at all. But my <laughs> my parents were, were driving our our family across the you know western united states you know basically on our way to the grand canyon okay you know which is this magnificent <laughs> beautiful site that, you going. know no one has ever you know no one could ever not be in awe of the grand canyon you know Absolutely. it's always more impressive than than anyone could ever explain you know that's all the mythology around it that's what they say yeah not to a junior high boy arthur <laughs> I when we got to the Grand Canyon, I was like asleep in the back of the van, and my parents were like, "We're at the Grand Canyon." And I was like, "I don't care. I'm going to sleep back here." <laughs> so I was very much sort of like drunken Tyrion or whatever. Um, and then so like I get coaxed, like, "Look, we came all the way to the Grand Canyon. You got to come out." And I was not thrilled with the idea, and I was just determined to be like just an asshole, as you know, as a lot of junior high boys <laughs> are. Absolutely. And I did indeed pee off the edge of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> wow, that—I mean, I, I think that's quite cool, actually. <laughs> I, I I'm not proud. I mean, now I'm a father of junior hires, and I can't. My children are so, are so great; they would never do anything like that. But I was just an asshole back then, or at least, if you wake me up and I'm tired and I don't want to get out of the van, I could I absolutely be an asshole. <laughs> so this is good. We come full circle. In our first interview, we talked about fog, um, <laughs> yeah, coming out so, of yeah. a warrior's penis, and now we're. And now this. And now this. I have never. I I've um, not told many people this story, so I'm a little bit reluctant <laughs> to actually put this in the podcast. <laughs> but I would hope that someone, you know, you can kind of. I'm a different. I'm a different person than I was when I was in junior. No, no, yeah. Don't, don't, don't try this at home or wherever. <laughs> <laughs> I would. I mean, honestly, I think it would have been justified for anyone to, if they saw me doing that, to just walk it behind me and push me in. That <laughs> that would be totally justified because that was totally disrespectful. Um, yeah, I I think it's a good two truths to one lie. Um, oh yeah oh that's not bad that's not bad yeah because no no one's no one's gonna think you actually did that <laughs> I, I i think i think there's a thing about how teenagers brains are wired um like i remember i went to to, to safari in 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 south africa yeah. and i was listening to podcasts the whole time and it's like the way to not be in the moment <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's kind of a junior high move right there yeah right? <laughs> uh -huh. arthur mm -hmm. such a pleasure I really appreciate your yeah your afternoon and uh, you know you've done a lot of 
hard work. I think you deserve a, <laughs> a, a, a nice cold beverage. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, thank you, thank, thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah, um, I love this podcast. Um, I think it's really enriching, and um, I'm just I'm just honored to be here. Honestly. And now Steve and I cover Dark Wings, Dark Words. This is the episode that has that great fight on the bridge between Jamie and Brienne, and John meets a warg up north of the wall. And Lady Olena, one of my favorites, pries the truth out of Sansa about Joffrey. It's one of my favorite episodes. Here is Steve Osborne. Steve, I'm going to start with a bold statement. Okay. I think this was the perfect Game of Thrones episode. Whoa, that is a bold statement. There are Game of Thrones episodes that are sort of jaw-dropping that raise the cultural currency of the show more. Sure. But I just, you know, you just want solid Game of Thrones bread and butter. I think this was the episode. Okay. Go on. Uh, no, I, I think that's it. That's all. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's all I mean, gotta yeah, say. That's, that's all you have to do. The, the burden of proof is clearly on me. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I love the, uh, well, the subtle amount of magic. You know, there's certainly magic stuff, but done, I think, tastefully enough so that you didn't feel like you're in the fantasy genre. It feels like you're in, like Heather says, a more an adventure show. Sure. couple interesting little twists that I enjoyed. Mostly the dialogue was great. That, that's how I feel. Got it. Okay. And you? Um, I mean, I, I feel like this is one that, um, to me... Felt like it was moving things along, but it left me wanting. Really? Wow. I, I, it, yeah. I think this is new territory for us. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so let's talk about what left you wanting or what you might have done differently had you been at the reins. The issue that we have with the narrative quite like this, where it's so complex, is... You know, we try to look at these episodes in a vacuum. That's what we're doing for this particular review, right? But we're really looking at these episodes in terms of how it's moving the narrative along. And this one really felt like one that was moving the narrative along. And I mean, don't get me wrong. It was compelling, well acted, great dialogue, all that stuff. But in terms of like, wow, this is not one of those episodes. I felt I felt like this was a necessary episode. I felt like we're getting on to the, the next thing. I mean, I was fascinated that the fact that, you know, Bran wakes up and he's 27 years old. I mean, that's a nice twist. Um, <laughs> Did we see Bran at all in the in season three? This is the first time we've seen him, right? Season, right. Or, yeah. So so we haven't. So he's aged a lot. Yeah. He was, <laughs> yeah, he certainly has. You got that little note late, late in the episode that Jamie's been captive for a full year. Right, right. So you, I think that you're... Now we're getting some timeline, right? Yeah, you're supposed to get the idea that quite a bit of time has actually passed. And of course, you know, you're, one of your main actors hits puberty. There's not a whole lot you can do. No, not really. They can't do the Malcolm in the Middle thing, right? Where the inimitable Frankie Muniz, uh, Agent Cody Banks and whatnot... Um, he he hits puberty and i think he, they actually have him like doing like modifying his voice so it almost sounds like a speech impediment in uh, some of these later episodes because he's creating some sort of uh, you know an impression of of himself well this is famously the urkel problem 
Ah, uh, the Urkel problem. Yes, I mean the Urkel problem echoes, right? I mean, I mean the Urkel still are, problem. We're still wrestling with the Urkel problem. <laughs> the Urkel problem. You know, after a while, he got very tall, very thin. He still had the glasses, but boy, he was just trying to be Urkel. He's yeah. trying his hardest to be Urkel. Exactly. Yeah. It's like he went from being like prepubescent to like going through a midlife crisis and he still. Yeah. He became Dwayne from a different world before our eyes. <laughs> so, yeah. Did that take you out of the show that he had aged up that much? Uh, no, but there was that moment where you're just like, oh, OK, because, you know, I mean, just all right. He's 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 a man. That's fine. I didn't dislike this episode by any stretch, but this is just one that was just like for me was um, maybe part of it is like, hey, here's a, here's some new characters. And I'm like, good Lord, I'm trying. I'm trying to keep up. Oh, yeah. OK, so let's talk about the new characters. There were quite a few new characters, actually. Yeah, well, that yeah. And I think okay. maybe that's what it was hard for me to fully appreciate because I'm like, I'm invested in all these guys. And now you're giving me a little less of these guys because we got to bring in these new ones. So one of my favorite characters in this show in all of this show, is Lady Olena. Okay. And she's the uh, the grandmother of Marjorie. Yeah, she's got a little spunk. I just love that character. So we'll talk about her a little bit later. We met Thoros, who's sort of the drunken leader of the Brothers Without Banners. Bro- yeah, yeah. We met Jojen and Mira. We meet Theon's captors, but they're unnamed, right? Yeah, but this is this is uh, Ramsey's crew, right? Or is that what? We're, or we don't know? Or we well, I know? think that I think that a judicious observer will probably make that assumption, right? Gotcha. I think that they don't want they didn't want to reveal that right away, but there's sure. so many hints that there's one house that does a lot of torturing, right? Yeah, exactly. We've we've yeah. <laughs> so it's like their thing. It's their thing. They it's like it. What they do. They've even made a logo about it. If you want a truck, you got to get a Ford. <laughs> if, if you if you want a man flayed, <laughs> you go to the Boltons. That's just the way it is. I mean, it's... Speaking of flayed men, we also meet Locke at the very end of the episode. And I don't think he's named. He's the guy that takes Jamie and Brienne captive at the end. Gotcha. Okay. So the, you're right. There are tons of new characters introduced. We got a, a was it a wog or a warg? What do they call the a warg? Yeah, like an, yeah, warg. Okay, yeah, we meet a warg. Sure, why wouldn't we? Yeah, well, in addition to that, they use the they use him. They use that weird looking warg guy to also reinforce sort of the rules around magic relative to Bran, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's so. I guess you could say we meet two wargs in this episode. We just didn't know what to call Bran beforehand. Sure. Seemingly, Bran's dreams make him something a little bit more than a warg. He's a... I think that the correct term is going to be green seer, but um, what Asha calls it is black magic dreams. Mm-hmm. And I think that that might be show only. I don't think that they use oh, okay. that phrase in the books. But, I, th- you know, you use the phrase black magic dreams... It's shorthand. You know, most viewers are going to get a a sense of what that would look like. Right. They're longing for a Fleetwood Mac song or something. Yeah. Or I want a black magic raven. I want a black magic raven. (laughs) It was right there in front of me. (laughs) And this is why we bring on a professional comic. That's right. 
Um, all right. So I got some good dialogue from a few of my favorite characters. And I got to be introduced to a couple characters that I really like. And there were just a couple scenes that I just thought were wonderful. So let me give you. So so let me, let me, let me, uh, characters I really like. Now, these are characters you like because of the book. No, I think. Did you already have, did you already have like, oh, good, it's these guys? Good question. Because that might be where I'm having a disconnect, right? Okay. Here's the full backstory on Lady Elena in my viewing. I don't think she's that memorable to me from the books. Okay. Although I do remember her having a few good one-liners or whatever, but I remember feeling a special affection for her in the show. Okay. And the reason why is that gender aside, she reminds me of my doctoral supervisor, James Dunn. Their affect, the kind of jokes that they make, their sort of sardonic humor. But, uh, yeah, she reminds me of someone that I like a lot already. And uh, maybe that's why I like her. But I think she's a smart character. I like smart characters. I think that uh, she's genuinely funny at times. I like that, too. If I was going to want to listen to a Game of Thrones podcast that was hosted by two in-world characters, I would want Tyrion and Lady Olena. That would be my choice. There we go. All right. There so so that makes sense. I mean, and the thing is, she was great. I mean, the, the, the introduction of that character felt it, it felt necessary in, on a couple levels. It's a drop of water in, in Sansa's like, you know, barren wasteland right now. Right. I mean, like, yeah. And in addition to that, we already knew that Marjorie was a formidable character. Right. So in addition to right. that, in addition to her being a formidable character, now she kind of has her own Tyrion. Yeah. Right. She's got this person who's smart, who's sort of behind the scenes, giving her advice, who's playing the game. And in a lot of ways, she is sort of Tyrion for the Tyrells. And I I like the idea that Tyrion's going to have another intelligent match. A game player. Yeah, right, right. Someone to go up against. Which is his thing. That's what he likes. That's what he likes. So... One of the scenes that I really liked in this show was that, you know, they're they're sort of really grilling Sansa to talk about Joffrey. Like, what's he really like? You know, and basically they're just, they're fishing, they're doing some reconnaissance. And Sansa lets her guard down and finally says he's a monster. I loved Marjorie's sort of like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. Eye roll. Right. To me, that says so much about her character. That's not like, oh yeah, oh I no, mean, I'm then, marrying a monster. It's sort of like, oh, now we got to deal with that. Well, and then she goes and's like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play to his monsterness. That's right. And so she, to that me, was that, great. to me, that just that little like, oh, that's a bummer eye roll that she gives at that table makes me think this person just got the information she needed to manipulate someone like Joffrey, who is, I'm on the record as saying he's too stupid to live. And <laughs> and it's really going to be no match. She's just going to steamroll him. It seems to me, right? And then which which also lends to um, a little bit more to the is like is like Cersei has been threatened by her. And the question I have still is: Is it because uh because does she understand? Does she have some inkling on how crafty? Uh, I think Marjorie so. I is. think when Cersei says, "Look, she." 
she does this charity work for a reason. She yeah, knows and, and that there's like something deeper there, right? And she's downplaying her concern to Joffrey, right? Like right. she's trying to, she cre- she keeps it like her concern fairly superficial to Joffrey because one, I think I also believe she believes uh, that he's too stupid to live. Right. And so she's she's managing him to the best of her oh, ability. She's trying to just, teach him politics and he's totally immune to it. Right. And so he she can't tell him, okay, this is what she's going to do and whatever because I because he's just not he doesn't have the capacity. So yeah, that was I I thought was a fascinating twist how she managed that scene because at at one point you're like, "Oh, is he going to be cruel to her?" but then she just plays it and then just and he continues to be a very malleable yeah yeah um for marjorie which is great and you know so then now you have sansa and, it, and this helps too i think add a little bit more depth because we've asked a lot of questions about sansa like is does she believe this is she really like just all in on this you know joffrey's my king notion and and so that was helped to to sort of break that part of the character so yeah she finally that. had it's finally a release for that character so the other scene that i liked a lot in this episode. I really love this exchange between Jamie and Brienne. When Jamie gets that sword from her, there's just this look of blissful satisfaction on his face. When Superman, you know, reverses yes. the uh, that energy or whatever. Yeah, this is a very Superman 2 thing where he, he's given up his powers. Right. And then, and then he finally gets them back. Yeah, when Zod goes in there and he's like Neil, and then he crushes his hand, and Zod now is has is more human than that was his Zod moment. Tony. That's right. So I love that. I love that he goads her into expressing her affection for Renly, and then she lies a little bit. She says, "Oh, I, I was as close to him as anyone," and clearly she's she's not self aware in that way, and he's sort right. of using that, and then finally. He says, I don't blame you for it. We don't really choose the people that we love. Right. That was a great line. That was wonderful. That was a really good line. In fact, that was, uh, that was, that, I think that was my, maybe my favorite line in the show because it really, again, it's, it says so much meant, without saying a lot. You know? Right. You're not meant to empathize with Jamie, but there's that moment where you start to realize, like, when you start to think about, like, you know, looking at Rob and, and like, the criticism he's getting because he's, you know, he, he yeah, married yeah. to Lisa and what everything is going on with that. And there's this sense of, like, well, this is not right. Like, his is more of a sense of duty. Whereas from Jamie's perspective it, or Jamie's narrative, it's like, well, this is just not right, right? It's not, it's, it's an unsavory relationship you have with Cersei. And Cersei, clearly, while she is, you know, she loves Jamie, she's, she's not above anybody in the family whereas jamie seems to be <laughs> yeah as long jamie as he keeps it in the family right he's not very discerning jamie's 100 percent focused on her it's the only woman he's been with and when he says that though it really it's the most vulnerable i think we've seen him right? yeah absolutely and i think that as viewers we're sort of lulled into that vulnerability right we kind of view as him as being somewhat powerless and then when he gets that sword, it's like, oh, wow. Now we're going to see something yeah, yeah. entirely different. He he seems to be enamored with Brienne. I think he he tends to favor somebody who is good at fighting, right? Like, not just fighting, but, like, the art of fighting. I think he anime. really genuinely likes her and respects her as a fighter. And at the same time, I really do think he was willing to kill her. 
I, exactly. And that's, that's kind of where I, I was, was going to go is that I think that there's this sense of like, like, it would be an honor to fight you. It'd be an honor to kill you. And eh, if you killed me, I mean, I don't want to die, but it would earn, it would, it would validate whatever respect he's starting to give. So there, there almost seemed like the fight in some way was one, it's self-serving for sure, but there's an element of like, this is what you and I should do. This is what you and I are made to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that Jamie now just so hit it off at the pass. I don't condone violence, nor do I <laughs> condone incest. So Jay, Jamie is certainly a problem. Do you, do, you do you not condone them the same? Or is there one that you feel like, you know, there's a time and place for? And I, you don't have to tell me which one is which. They're both in my top 10 of things I don't condone. <laughs> One could be one and one could be 10. (laughs) But Jamie, I think Jamie views himself as an artist. I think he views himself, even when he's talked in the past about uh, Sir Barristan, that he was a he was a painter that only used red or whatever. I think he had that line. I really do think that he sees swordplay as this fine art and he views himself as the best artist in the kingdom. And he is willing to die for it. He's willing to kill for it, but he's all about it. Like that's, he's totally, his identity is totally wrapped up into this one thing. So I think that there's something about meeting someone like Brienne who may have this in common with him that he's kind of thrilled by. So I like that scene. I like that scene a lot. Yeah. We have a reference to a Howland Reed in this episode. Howland Reed is the father of these new characters, Jojen and Mira. Oh, okay. And I suppose he and Ned were were friends during Robert's Rebellion. And seemingly Howland Reed and Ned Stark share a secret, Steve. Oh, okay. That's, that's going to come into play in later seasons anyway. I like secrets. For this week's Bird's Eye View, I've been rereading Caroline Larrington's book, Winter is Coming. And I thought a few paragraphs in here will answer a question that I got from Rebecca. So Rebecca asks, I don't know much about the War of the Roses, aside from a very superficial Wikipedia skim. But I've heard that George may have gotten some inspiration from this. If you all have any expertise in this historical event and the extent to which it may have inspired Game of Thrones, I'd be interested in knowing more. So, Rebecca, here are a few lines from Caroline Larrington's book, Winter is Coming. This is Bloomsbury Academic Press. By the way, I published a few books with Bloomsbury in the past, and I find them a joy to work with. So any authors out there, those are my two cents. This is Larrington on page two. How far is the recent history of the Seven Kingdoms a reworking of the 15th century War of the Roses? Martin has declared the struggle for domination between the descendants of Edward III was an inspiration for the politics of Westeros. And the chime of Stark and York and Lannister and Lancaster is a suggestive one. Yet filtered through Martin's powerful imagination and the epic vision of the show creators, Benioff and Weiss, the facts of history are transmuted into something richer, stranger, more archetypal. Take the princes of the tower. Listen up, Rebecca, here we are. Edward and Richard, 
the two sons of the Yorkist king Edward IV. After their father died suddenly in early 1483, their paternal uncle Richard, Duke of Gloucester, took charge of the boys, aged 12 and 9. They were lodged in the Tower of London in preparation for Edward's coronation. Then, mysteriously, they disappeared, and Uncle Richard seized the throne. Bran and Rickon were never in line for the Iron Throne. Side note here, uh, Caroline, you might want to add a footnote here in the revision. Uh, Of course, though Bran becomes heir to Winterfell, but the motif of supposed death of the two innocent childs is refracted more than once in the series, in Elia Martell's children as well as Catelyn's youngest sons. And similarly, Cersei has been compared to several other troublesome and feisty medieval queens, we have uh, Margaret, we have Eleanor, we have Isabella, uh, just to name a few. So in all of those ways, yes, uh, Martin is drawing from War of the Roses, and he has said so much in uh, in print. I will say one little thing. I think I would strengthen a claim that Larrington makes here. Richard is accused of disappearing, murdering you know, two young royal boys. That's exactly what happens to Tyrion. They're not brothers. But Tyrion is accused of attempting to murder Bran, and he is also accused of killing Joffrey. So yes, even though Martin is sort of uh, flipping the history on its head and ratcheting up the stakes in a fantasy epic, uh, you can really see the DNA for Tyrion in Richard's uh, persona. And moreover, Richard is uh, rumored, at, at least in the Tudor histories, to be a twisted and deformed person. And this is, you know, sort of bespeaking his twisted and deformed personality. So even if the rumors are not true, what what Martin likes to do is he takes the rumors of the Middle Ages and then he imbues his characters with these and actualizes them. So Tyrion is often described as someone who has a, a twisted spine or something. I think that that is a direct homage to Richard. So Rebecca, I hope that's helpful. And my thanks again to Caroline Larrington, such a lovely book. I will look forward to having Caroline on in just a couple of weeks. <laughs>